0: What if it rained food? What if earth was a few? What if we had nine lives? What if it could fly? It's absurd. If money grew on trees, if we didn't have bees, if we walked through lives slightly magnetical, it's
1: absurd. Absurd Hypotheticals. Hello everybody and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Hey guys, this is this is something this question is something I feel like I should be doing in this uh wonderful year of 2020 and it is what if everyone lived underground? It seems like a <laughs> nice safe place to be. <laughs> but given that I live in a a third-story apartment, I do not have access to a uh, a backyard where I can put in a nice little bunker or something. So for now, for me, this is just going to be hypothetical. But as always, the first part of this question is always defining very simple things like what does it mean to be underground okay. <laughs> or what is above ground or however you want to look at it. And uh, Ben, you're going first. I'm going to let you take the, the first stab at defining the ground and what it means to be under it.
0: Yeah. So we, we talked about this for a little while, actually, when we were you know, choosing this question. We, hilariously, we never really came to like a firm decision on what we it was kinda, going to mean. We did kind of gloss over it and then just do our answers. <laughs> yeah. We were kind of like, oh, we'll figure it out. I guess we did. Personally, I guess you guys can kind of say this is what you wound up sticking to. There's kind of two ways you could do it. You could either do it, you're entirely underground, sealed off from the outside world completely. Or you are, you know, in like some sort of cave system that does connect to the outside world. I guess technically could also say that you live underground and like can go outside to, you know, cut down trees and whatever. Right.
2: Because like we live in houses, but we can go outside right. We can leave our house.
0: Exactly. So I personally mostly stuck to either entirely sealed underground or um, underground, but not going outside. I don't know what you guys did. Yeah. I mean, that that fits my answer. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. So what I, what I looked at was mostly, you know, just like base survival, food, air, um, you know, that sort of stuff. How is that going to work, assuming never going outside? And there actually is – it's not never going outside. There actually is a cave village in the real world, um, which in in southwestern China, there's – it's a a Zhongdong, I think. I can't do Chinese pronunciations. (laughs) Um, There's a village of about a little over 100 people. Um, It's about a mile up a mountain in this 370-foot-wide cave that's about 700 feet down below the surface of the mountain. Where there's just this village of people that live. The name actually means middle cave, which suggests that at some point there were at least, I would guess, about two other caves, I would I would guess. <laughs> um, there are actually two other caves nearby. Uh, one is now too damp um, for people to live in and one that just, just isn't inhabited for whatever reason. Officially, they've lived there, like according to the government, since 1949. Uh, they moved there to protect themselves during the Chinese Civil War. But, like, looking at, like, the evidence of, you know, like, the soil and the cave and everything, it looks like there have been people there for centuries. So, this is, like, a natural cave? Yep. There's a natural cave up in the mountains. Um, and it's it's not completely isolated. There's another settlement they they can get to about an hour walk away, which they go to to, like, you know, buy, like, toothpaste and, and sell things and everything. Um, they're not entirely cut off, but for the most part, they are pretty self-sufficient. And they actually do. They actually um, grow corn and rice and some other vegetables and raise livestock. They raise like chicken, pigs, and cows, um, just using plots that are either near the entrance of the cave, or they, there are just natural light shafts, like in the ceiling of the cave. They have you know light coming down.
2: How big is this village? Like how many people?
0: Uh, the only number I saw was over a hundred, so it's not huge. Um, there is apparently like an elementary school there. Um, that it sounds like like kids from other places come to because they said they had like 200 students at one point i don't know but yeah they 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 have electricity they had electricity run not too long ago i don't think like in the last you know 20 or 30 years but yeah yeah so they they have something that comes in through you know these these light shafts and they collect the water that drips down the walls and guide that to the fields for irrigation um and apparently they have also recently drilled wells and diverted some springs for more like drinking water and irrigation So obviously this isn't, you know, entirely cut off. They do leave the cave, but there is at least an example of people successfully for an extended period of time living in a cave. That's kind of the idea we had, which is cool. It's cool when it actually, you know, works out that this is something that's happened.
1: Yeah, it's nice when our hypotheticals aren't so hypothetical.
0: I know, right? Well, kind of. (laughs) Maybe it's it's a not so absurd hypothetical. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So for our our purposes, for a more, you know, isolated um, situation... How do we handle these sort of basic needs? So food, we're always going to run into an energy problem, which is just that every energy and like an ecosystem comes from somewhere. And most of the time, this is the sun, because the sun is just a lot of energy. And I, obviously, if you're underground to the point where there's not sunlight, none of that energy is gained down there. So you're always going to have a very low energy system, which is a problem when supporting life. That's why, you know, there aren't a lot of animals that just live exclusively in caves because there's not much energy there. So, speaking of animals, if it is a closed system, animals aren't really going to be a possibility for us. The only things we could, like, once again, if there is access to the outside world, you know, bats or, or other, like, rodent-type things are possible, but... I don't think there's any way because of that energy problem we're going to be able to like raise livestock without say you know that sunlit field situation from that actual village. For actually growing things um, we have talked about doing like the hydroponic box farms before if you want to hear more about that I don't remember what number it was I didn't look that up but the underwater living episode we did any chance one of you has that handy No. I can look it up in like one minute. Okay that works but we go in more into detail there and that's Almost certainly, actually, the answer here is some sort of hydroponic farm with, you know, grow lights and a, like, sealed light system. But I did want to look into some other options as well. Uh, the a, obvious one... Go ahead. It's episode 67. Episode 67. So there you go. He'll hear more about, more about that. The obvious answer is mushrooms. Uh, underground mushroom farms are already a thing. They don't photosynthesize. They do actually require some light in order to form, like, the fruit bodies that you... What you think of as, like, the actual mushroom, like, the, like that you eat. Um, But only a few hours of light a day, and it can be very, very... Like, it has to be very, very dim. Can you cheat the light with, like, humid, like, with like a UV lamp or something? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can use, like, a fluorescent lamp, apparently. It's, like... It's not even, like, they need the nutrients. I think it's just actually, literally, they need, like, the light to tell them where to grow or something. I don't remember how it Gets them in the mood. Way. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, they need some mood lighting. They need high humidity. That's not a problem. We are in a cave. They're actually pretty like temperature resistant they like it around 70 degrees fahrenheit but they can form fruit in a decent range like 50 to 70 or so there are some issues the biggest problem with mushrooms is that they're mostly water they're like 80 and 90 percent water which means that a pound of mushrooms only contains 101 calories and the number of calories you need to avoid going into like starvation mode varies depending on what source you use but 1200 seemed pretty consistent and that's 12 pounds of mushrooms a day which is a lot of mushrooms. Per that person. is a lot of mushrooms. <laughs> I also, so I had seen that mushrooms are a good source of protein, protein and carbs, but a bad source of like the fats your body needs. But actually I like, it It turns out, so you need like on a starvation or like that 1200 calorie diet, you want like 26 to 46 grams of fat per day. And apparently there's about two and a half grams of fat per pound of mushrooms. So 12 pounds would be like 30 grams of fat, which is perfect. So you could eat 12 mushrooms and probably be okay. I, there's definitely some, like, vitamins to missing, but it works a lot better than I would expect to just eat
1: a shitload of mushrooms. I'm just trying to imagine, like, what 12 pounds of mushrooms looks like, like, in a bowl. Yeah, like, it's... how much volume does it take up? It's, I mean, it's a lot.
0: So, <laughs> oh, yes, okay. So, when you buy, like, the little styrofoam container of mushrooms at the store, Right. That's eight ounces. I never buy mushrooms at stores. You never buy mushrooms at stores? Oh, well, I crazy. used to not
2: like mushrooms. I just recently started liking mushrooms.
0: I mean, I guess I, I only started liking mushrooms a lot in the last like couple of years. So. But, you know, it's like a... It's like a... I don't know. How big is that? Like six inch by four inch little container? Maybe that's like, more like five by four or something little container of mushrooms? Not four. I don't know. It would be a lot of mushrooms. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I don't think... I will say it's almost certainly not sustainable to feed a you know society with
1: twelve pounds of mushrooms each per day. So yeah, so I'm looking one pound of fresh mushroom, one pound of fresh button mushrooms equals twenty to twenty four medium mushrooms. Yeah. So twelve times that is about two hundred and fifty mushrooms you have to eat. It's a lot of day. mushrooms.
2: So to give us context for how big a mushroom is, you compared it to another mushroom. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you can you can imagine one one regular mushroom. Just like a mushroom, you know? Like yeah. A <laughs> <laughs> like the like the, the typical, like, white mushroom that you'd yeah. see in, like, any cooking. Like, that... Yeah, that mushroom. You need 24 of those to get a pound. So you just gotta multiply that 24 by 12 to get how many mushrooms you need to eat per day. Yeah.
0: Other things, there's, there's unsurprisingly not much you can grow without sunlight. The one thing you can technically do, you can sprout beans or seeds... That you can just like put some water on them and put them in a dark place and they'll sprout. Problem is, that doesn't make more seeds. It just sprouts the ones you already have. So it's, once again, not sustainable. You can store seeds for some of them like around five years, but not, you know, you can't make more seeds by sprouting seeds. So that's kind of a short-term, short-term solution, I guess. Enjoy the beans while they last. <laughs> Overall, calories are a problem. I looked into, I was hoping you could. I could just say you could make like, you could just have like a giant vat of like olive oil. Or something but olive oil is apparently the longest lasting you know like edible oil and it goes ranched after about two years so i think the answer on food is we probably have to have access to some amount of sunlight in order to have enough energy to like support support people so not the most exciting answer but the actual answer i guess so either grow lights or actual sunlight is going to be uh necessary so that's food oxygen for the most part, oxygen comes from photosynthesis, which is obviously a problem because unless we have... I mean, if we have sunlight, then yeah, that's easier. But if we don't have sunlight, clearly that's a problem because we don't have light to make photosy- photosy- well photosynthesis happen. I can't talk today. So I looked into ways to make oxygen without uh, photosynthesis. And there aren't many, uh, it turns out. <laughs> the coolest one I found... And the one that I'm going to use, because it's awesome. I found it in this study from 2014, where, where basically they were trying to figure out, the scientists were trying to figure out how oxygen originally got into the Earth's atmosphere. Because there was kind of an assumption that they needed some amount of, there had to be some small amount of oxygen in the atmosphere in order to start all of the actual, you know, process that made our current atmosphere So they're trying to figure out how that happened, and they eventually found out that if you use a vacuum ultraviolet laser to irradiate CO2, which is, it's basically, it's, it's UV light that is actually low enough wavelength that it's usually absorbed by air, Um, so you have to do it in a vacuum, or, you know, close to a vacuum, it reacts with that and actually will create some amount of oxygen.
2: Air air can absorb light?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Apparently. I have learned this from this study. This is a whole... I'm not going to lie. I don't know all the mechanics behind that, but (laughs) apparently.
1: Sure, why not? Physics gets weird once you start moving away from, like, regular numbers. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Like, in the sense of what Ben's talking about, air is a really dense material all of a sudden. (laughs) Right. Once you start talking about nonsense. At,
0: At a certain point, it becomes dense compared to, you know light i guess (laughs) so they actually theorize that it's, it's actually you know still happening now that in the very very upper limits of our atmosphere there is oxygen being generated from the the this high energy vacuum uv light from the sun so conceivably if you had something that could make ultraviolet or vacuum ultraviolet light and you could just pump all your co2 into a chamber and irradiate it you could then generate oxygen i'm not gonna lie They had very small amounts of oxygen generated. This was not going to be a sustainable thing as well, but it was cool enough that I had to bring it up.
1: Also, what happens to, like, the other bits? Like, (laughs) the not oxygen. They didn't talk about that in the summary, I read.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to pretend it just goes away. (laughs) Which I know is impossible. It isn't dangerous at all. (laughs) It is not dangerous at all. They also definitely, you know, like, once again bad solution but cool solution so i'm gonna say it works um that we happen to have like a magic box that generates oxygen from co2 <laughs> the actual answer is that we have a connection to the outside world still
2: just like a ventilation shaft or something right exactly
0: speaking of ventilation shafts and i guess shafts in general i did not realize this, this was gonna be a problem but depending on how deep we are uh the temperature is very much going to be a problem so the the deepest mine in the world is the taltona mine or western deep number three shaft in south africa it's a are gold mine two other
2: just like the caves there's two other ones
0: there are two other i would assume that there are
1: two at least two other uh <laughs> shafts yeah man the number three really takes out the drama of calling like welcome to the western deep i know number three number three yeah oh you had two others okay the sequel yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so it is a about 2.4 miles deep, and it's the, the world's deepest mine operation. The the rock face down at the bottom of the mine, uh, without any sort of air conditioning, would reach 140 degrees Fahrenheit, which is obviously a problem. And they actually do have like multiple fatalities a year just from from like heat exhaustion from miners. They do cool the the air down to about eighty two degrees, which is pretty impressive, honestly
1: yeah it's still not comfortable though i'll tell you my apartment's 82 right now and it's not great right
0: yeah so you can imagine that like mine and it leads to some some problems but you know we, we didn't establish exactly how deep we'd be but if we were any deeper i i try to get good numbers on how how warm different like depths got it sounds like even once you get down to even just a mile you're gonna be you know in the around 90 degree at least range which is going to be pretty warm. Once again, the best solution here is having some kind of, of ventilation to allow the heat to escape, and um, you're going to, have to need some actual like actual AC system to blow cool air down. Because obviously, a mine shaft is open air and it still gets that hot. So just passive cooling isn't going to work. The one thing that could work that you know would obviously be a project, but um, conceivably, if there was a spring like a cool spring nearby, you could use it as almost like liquid cooling. If you, you know, ran some sort of, of um, you know, the way you do liquid cooling is basically have cool water and then pump hot water off of a heat sink past that cool water to transfer, you know, the heat. Conceivably, you could do that. If you could, you know, put in a piping system that goes right by a spring and doesn't puncture it and still has enough like transference to do that, Seems difficult. Not going to lie. <laughs> Technically possible, I guess. But I guess just overall, the answer is probably don't go that deep or we will die from heat, which is bad. In case you didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Explain to me how that's Right. Bad. Yeah. Little Hold in fact, dying from being hot is a bad thing. So I guess, yeah, overall, overall answer is the slightly boring, boring. We probably need to still be able to get to the outside world for light and air. But I guess there are technically ways you could do it without. If you had, you know, hydroponic, um, like, grow boxes to grow food and some sort of, you know, air compression and, and
1: cooling system to pull in, you know, do like an air exchange from outside to inside. Do you think you could get enough plants to just convert enough oxygen? Like, if you can grow enough plants down there? The, in the... the problem you have is that you're, you're going to need a, a lot of plants.
0: And you're going to need a lot of, like, grow lights for those plants, which is going to make the heat problem a lot worse and require, obviously, a lot of energy. I assume you don't know this, but,
2: do you, like, how much oxygen does, like, a plant produce? God, I, I have, on the plant.
0: I have looked for that number so many times <laughs> and never found it.
1: It's almost like trees are different sizes and different species, and it all varies. <laughs> yeah. And they should have, like, averages or something or some sort of study on it.
0: So, So I think part of the problem, too, is that, most of so most of the oxygen comes from algae which a lot of that's just the fact there's so much freaking algae in the world the biggest like you know converters i guess on an like, individual basis would be trees but there's no way you could grow a tree underground because you wouldn't have you wouldn't be able to have like rich enough soil i would assume i don't think you get enough light from grow lights excuse me for a tree i don't know You'd, be, you'd be, i think you'd be stuck with just pretty small crops which i don't think would there's, there probably is a number of plants you could use to generate oxygen but you have to have surface area to grow all those plants and every time you're doing that you're also going to be adding volume that you need to fill with air as well right so i think it's kind of it's almost like the same the same problem as as launching a rocket where your fuel has weight i think that as you add more space to put more plants in to make more oxygen you need more oxygen to maintain the correct oxygen level
2: what if our walls and ceilings are all made of plants? <laughs> that seems
0: tricky. <laughs> Everything is just moss all the way down. <laughs> so I got I got very excited for a minute cuz I did see a building that had like algae in it, like algae walls it was talking about, but it was basically the the walls were fu- full of water, they grew algae in with the sun, and then they like filtered the algae out occasionally and sent it off to be like bioprocessed into fuel and it was not quite as all contained as i was hoping oh bummer yeah it was pretty cool though big old green kind of clear building wouldn't want to live in it seems really strange
1: (laughs) (laughs) it probably smells gross
0: yeah so i guess that's my answer is that it's it's we probably still need some connection to the outside world but obviously because people do actually do it you can live entirely underground so that's that's cool uh chris what did you do so when we came up with this underground question, the first thing
2: I thought of was the fact that we would have no sunlight and my mind went to vitamin D. We have actually covered this before in previous episodes. So I think it was our, what if no one could go outside episode. I covered it. I think that was episode 75. And basically the outcome of that was that you can take vitamin D supplements and there's all, sources, there's all sorts of different sources to make those supplements. But And you could have like UV lamps or something like that as a source of vitamin D but there are other problems that come from a lack of the sun so in 1965 there was a study where there are two people there, I think there are actually like two separate studies but they're happening at the same time and they were like studying the same thing but Josie Lores and Antoine Senny they both lived in a cave in the French Alps for like a really long time it, at the time it was like a record length so josie stayed for 88 days and that was the record for women and antoine stayed for 126 days which is a record for men and during their stay there the researchers were monitoring their eating habits their sleeping habits and their just all their vital signs and after emerging they found that their physical health was pretty much the same like there's their perfect physical health but it was very mentally taxing. So actually in 1972, one of the researchers of those those other studies, he actually researched on himself and he isolated himself. He stayed in a cave in Texas for six months and he described it as physically not tiring, but mentally it was like he was in hell. He actually describes, uh, because he was isolated and he was so lonely, he was trying to befriend a mouse and he accidentally killed it. So like, he no,
0: yeah he's <laughs> the, the
2: worst version of Wilson ever,
0: yeah, Wilson from, from castaway the volleyball, oh, <laughs> were you thinking of him I some Because I was thinking of him, yeah, I was too. I was like, yeah. is that is that the name? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was Lenny
1: <laughs> Lenny and Wilson
2: didn't get along, <laughs> <laughs> but he describes that he was like he spread a bunch of jam on the ground to to learn the mouse. Um, and the mouse came over and started licking the jam, and he tried to trap it under a dish, but he missed, and the lid of the dish crushed the the mouse. No, <laughs> has nothing to do with my actual answer, I just wanted to sit, tell you that.
1: <laughs> Are we sure this guy like, was, you know, he said it was mentally taxing because he's just a gosh-dang idiot? <laughs> <laughs> and
2: later, in later studies studying isolation, they found that isolation can cause anxiety hallucinations and a decline in mental performance but that is in isolation that's not necessarily what our hypothetical is about these studies were studying that but a different revelation that came from these studies was that when people emerged from their caves they thought far less time had passed than had actually passed and that's because there was no there was no sun down there to tell time and i guess they didn't have any like watches or clocks or anything and what happened is that People would fall asleep for like thirty hours at a time, but when they woke up, they thought they would just they had just taken like a short nap or something, and without any like environmental context clues, they had no way to tell that they had actually been asleep for thirty hours and later research on this in like circadian rhythms and stuff found that if you have no environmental context, people start to slip into a forty eight hour sleep cycle.
1: what yeah. It's it's really weird. I don't know why. <laughs> I sleep like if I sleep for like ten hours, like my body I like feel like what the heck. I feel like I've just emerged from like, you know, a thousand year curse where <laughs> right. i was trapped in the tomb or something. Yeah. Well, I mean a lot of that has to do with the sun. Like the sun wakes you up and
2: then you just naturally feel like you're supposed to wake up. But without that sun, that doesn't happen. So that that's like one Issue so like to solve that issue you could have if you're underground you could have like some sort of artificial day night cycle with lights and stuff but since that those uh those studies were about isolation I want to I want to look more into underground that isn't in isolation if we're just all underground together and there's a paper oh specifically I want to look at like psychology and stuff so there was a paper called a psychosocial approach to understanding underground spaces it was written in 2017. And they came up with four issues that arise from people living underground or like the perception of living underground. the first issue, this has more to do with like convincing people that being underground is okay, is that underground has like a pretty negative cultural association. So like various cultures and religions associate underground with death. So like hell in Christianity is underground. In Taoism and Buddhism, underground is the realm of the dead. And then, like, uh, various, like, Eastern and Western cultures, including us, we bury our dead. So just underground is associated with death in general. And then it's also associated with, like, cave societies and primitive cultures. So, like, cave dwellers, that's a pretty primitive thing. So when we think of underground, we just think, oh, that's a primitive thing. And yet 200 people
1: sent their kids to school there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah elementary school. Do you think their mascot was well, is a caveman or is that too on the nose? <laughs> Are they sick of caveman jokes? They're probably sick of caveman jokes. I'm sure they're sick of caveman jokes. Probably. So one of the suggestions
2: for this issue in the paper is just to have like modern amenities. They actually pointed out to modern structures underground, mainly in like more luxury places like mansions have some of them have underground bunkers and these underground bunkers do have modern amenities and mon- modern technology in them and one of the draws for these underground bunkers is the privacy they they provide they also provide so like if if we like associate underground with privacy comfort and like protection from the environment or from like harsh environments above that sort of eases our our idea of living underground
1: everyone all that bs that's above ground bs <laughs> go below ground there's no bs down there yeah
2: so that's that's like the cultural aspect of it The second issue they came up with was a perceived, perceived security. So like underground is associated with criminal activity and like evading the authorities and like in like a lot of existing underground structures there right now, there are like a lot of hidden places or places people can hide to like, like jump out at you and like do bad things to you. So some solutions they suggested for this are just have lots of light for high, high visibility and to have, like, a higher sense of security. Basically, just what we do above ground to comfort people that way. But it's underground now. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. But it, it it's, is even, even more needed underground because of this perceived lack of security. The third issue they came up with was isolation. I know we're not necessarily talking about, like, individual isolation from others anymore, but they said that it was, like, a feeling of being cut off from above ground. So I know in our scenario we haven't really decided if we're actually are cut off or not, but they suggest increasing the number of exits so that you have a perception that you can get out if you want to. And they they suggest increasing the number of escalators and elevators that lead back to the surface, just so you have more options. And they also suggest light wells and skylights as, like, a way to connect you to outside so, like, you can see the sun. I also don't know if that's allowed in our hypothetical, but maybe.
1: Well, what you can do is you can put doors that say they go to the outside and have <laughs> fake skylights, but it's all just a facade. <laughs> yeah. It's like, guys, you, you're not allowed to go outside, but, you know, we have emergency. Look, there's an emergency door right there that, goes out, that leads out there. And then halfway through the movie, someone goes crazy and throws the door open, and it's just a brick wall or more rock right behind it. And everyone's like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah it's all a lie that'll end well <laughs> yeah so i
2: guess that is an option we could do that they also suggest like in the transition areas where you're going further down you don't make it as You so we have like shallow slopes so it's not as obvious that you're going down and that you're getting further away from the surface and to make these areas also have like offices and rooms so that that area isn't only functioning as a transition area. It has other functions, so you don't think of it as a transition area. They also said that you can like mimic streets like street environments. So like like the hotel in Vegas, I forget which one it is, but the one with the gondolas and they like paint the ceiling as the sky. It's actually pretty convincing that you're outside when you're in there. We could do that. <laughs> do you know do you remember what that hotel is? I don't remember. I can't. Venetian? That sounds right. The Venetian? I'm going to say the Venetian.
1: (laughs) All right. We have the power to Google it and confirm right now, but we are not doing it.
2: (laughs) We do. It's supposed to mimic Venice. So I'm going to say the Venetian. So one of the positive things they actually found about this, this isolation thing is that isolation actually causes small groups to form. So feeling isolated enhances your sense of being in like a small community and encourages group oriented goals versus individual oriented goals. So if we have like communal areas for socializing and encouraging like group interaction then it strengthens our sense of community even though we kind of feel isolated. So that was that was the third issue. And then the last issue they came up with was a lack of control. So they specifically focused mainly on windows. Um so the fact that there aren't any windows or like a window provides an option they say so like if you see a window then you think that you can open it if you want to ventilate the room, or you can like adjust the blinds to adjust the light without that window. There's a perceived lack of control to control the environment. So you can't like adjust the light or the ventilation. Even if there are ways to do that, that aren't really connected to the window, there's a perceive, there's a perception. So there was actually a study where they had people in a room with no windows. And then they had a room with the virtual windows and the room with no windows people had a higher level of cortisol which is a stress hormone so people were more stressed and the virtual window actually did work for like it it lowered the levels of of cortisol so even if we don't have real windows we can have virtual windows and that should help and then they also contributing to lack of control was the lack of landmarks and like the similar layout like all of our underground structures right now have a very similar layout like as you move through it and that adds to the, to the perception that you don't have an option to evacuate in case of an emergency. So like you won't be able to navigate out if you have to. So you're always constantly looking for a way out and you can't find one and that causes stress. So I guess their solution to that is to just like add unique landmarks to different places. So
1: it's easier for you to orient yourself. Just more fake exit doors. It's all good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This whole, this whole room is just labeled escape pods. <laughs>
2: <laughs> just no matter which way you're going, it's towards an exit. <laughs> <laughs> and then another thing that they, they kind of put into this lack of control category was uh connection to nature. Um, so I guess people in offices with no windows, they had a higher desire to decorate their office with plants and stuff. And, I guess the connection in nature it has something to do with lack of control. I didn't really understand that part, but <laughs> our study concluded everyone's just a bunch of fricking hippies. <laughs> so you could add a bunch of greenery and that, I guess that helps with the, with the oxygen problem too. But obviously Ben said, that's not viable, but we can have some greenery, some places. I mean, it can't hurt. Help. Like... Yeah, it can't help. It can't hurt. Yeah. So that's basically what, how we'll keep ourselves sane. We'll have, probably virtual we'll install virtual windows with a day night cycle to to maintain our sleep cycles we'll make it as modern as possible we'll have lots of light so that people feel safe and we'll probably need a lot of energy for this i don't know surprisingly none of us went into that into the energy problem
1: well you <laughs> i can mean go, you can just th- go nuclear power and you can power anything
2: yeah yeah or we could like use the ther- the geothermal like all the heat that Ben was talking about. Oh, yeah, you can use
1: geothermal heat also is a good one. That's an option. So we'll need all this energy, but we can get it somewhere. Yeah, so that's my answer. Marcus, what do you do? So I went into actually a very specific problem that we would have, and I'm taking the interpretation that we have no connection to the outside world. And what I looked into was actually expansion, because if you, you know, dig a hole or a tunnel, you take all that dirt and you go and bring it somewhere else. But if you're trying to expand your underground civilization, you're in the ground. There's nowhere to actually bring all that debris that you've now dug out. And I imagine our population will be growing, so we need more space. Exactly. So how can we increase our underground space if we can't get rid of stuff that we dig out? So my first thought was just to basically reduce the volume of things by compressing them. So I was looking into if you could actually compress a rock and so the answer is kind of yes and no where basically every material at a certain level is compressible under enough pressure the issue is if you like you know you dug out you know a big cube of rock and you the idea is to make that cube smaller and you know until and you keep doing that until you've gained enough airspace once you've shrunk that rock under a high pressure if you let go of that pressure it would just spring back And I'll say this also on on matter of rocks. The amount of pressure you would need to make it a rock squish (laughs) is um, not super practical. (laughs) Just try squishing a rock at home and you'll find out quickly why. So then the other thought I had was, well, can you actually break down that rock and convert it into something that has a higher density naturally, like, say, a diamond? So I looked a little bit into how they make diamonds. So generally what we get from here, the average rock density is somewhere between 1.6 and 3 grams per centimeter cubed. A diamond has a density of 3.5 grams per centimeter cubed. So you'd be gaining, you know, a pretty good percentage of volume. Like if you can turn the average rock into a diamond, it's about half the size it was, which is great. So they have two main methods now of making, you know, artificial diamonds. One of them is called HPHT, which just stands for high pressure and high temperature, where you basically take the rock heat it up to thousands of degrees celsius under intense pressure and they actually seed it with a existing diamond that helps it form its structure i'm not quite sure how that works into like what process is making the the seed diamond necessary but it's kind of incredibly inefficient and again because thousands of degrees celsius plus the high pressure to go with it is really hard to do um, the second method that's kind of the more modern method of making artificial diamonds is what they call chemical vapor de- deposition, which uses a vacuum chamber that is filled with hydrogen methane to provide the source of carbon. Then that gas is turned into a plasma at extremely high temperatures, which releases carbon pieces, which are then layered onto a diamond seed in the vacuum chamber. So basically you have like this plasma gas that you, you know, or this gas that you turn into plasma with really high heat. And then you almost 3D print that onto your diamond seed in the middle to make a, to expand the diamond. Super cool. Really not getting us very many places. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, you know, they're not making giant diamonds. You're not, you know, you know, you're not making a room into diamonds. If you could make half a room of diamond, they would have done so already. <laughs> it's very expensive, very hard to do, and not really going to be good for, you know, civil engineering applications. But. There are other ways that we can work with it. So basically, straight bedrock, we can't do much with. We can't really compress it. We can't really break it down. But there are other types of ground that we can actually expand in. And the first one being limestone. So the the majority of real-life caves in the world are in limestone formations. And this is because limestone can actually be dissolved by carbonic acid, which sounds fancy, but it's just carbon dioxide dissolved in water. So basically, you know water, <laughs> can, can dissolve limestone. And so this is where you see like all of these big cave systems. This is where actually sinkholes, this is how sinkholes develop in areas like you see down in Florida where the, you know, the guy's car falls, you know, gets sucked up by the street. It's because the underground water has been, you know, passing through that area and slowly eroding away the rock or quickly eroding away the rock in, you know, geological terms. Is there a byproduct to that reaction? So the limestone actually dissolves into the water, so you do get the gains volume-wise. The issue is, though, is if we can't drain the water away. So again, we may be cut off from the surface, but I'm not sure how cut off we would be from, like, the underground water flow system that goes back to the ocean. Or if you could just take water that you have. There, you can gain some volume through limestone. And what's nice, too, is that these limestone areas tend to be already kind of caveish and cavernous. So there's not that much limestone if you go to an existing limestone area. It's already been you know, historically washed out into the ocean. So you can find the existing caves is where the limestone is. So it's kind of tough to gauge how much volume you would gain based on the dissolving because I'm not quite sure how much water you can get rid of. And if you just have to keep adding water and volume to dissolve it, you're really not gaining much ground. But there are other, there are other types of soils that are really helpful for, to us. One of the big ones is uh, deserts, actually. So desert sand, because, you know, a solid rock is a solid rock. You can't do much with that, but Sand, there's actually quite a lot of airspace between the, uh, the grains of sand. Desert sand typically has a porosity between 0.35 and 0.5, which means 35 to 50% of its volume is air. So you can melt down the sand to make sandstone, and you can gain back all that void space that was there as living area. So the Sahara Desert is between 70 to 160 feet deep, um, is how deep the sand goes. So you can just take that and you can build like, you know, these multi-storied underground structures just by, you know, melting the sand and, you know, pushing it around a bit. I have glass walls. Yeah, sand glass walls. That's right. I didn't even think about that. That's cool.
2: We already had a question about glass houses. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How many previous episodes have we got to reference in this one? We've got, we're on like three now. Yeah. Interesting fact that I just, I, just, I just found interesting about deserts is that, so the Sahara is 70 to 160 feet deep. Five feet deep of sand, like basically nothing, which I thought was interesting. And also, apparently historic sands, like in the Mesozoic and Paleozoic era, the desert landmasses, which are also just known as ergs, (laughs) E-R-G, ergs, (laughs) they reach an average depth of several hundred meters. So the ancient deserts were like three times deeper than our current desert, which I thought, I don't know why, but I thought that was kind of interesting. So... In the Sahara, we could build a... We could very easily expand in that area. So, other places I was looking at... Again, one of the things that... It's unfortunate that if you mess with solids, they don't get less dense. Except for one famous example, of course, which is ice. So, when you freeze water, everyone knows it gets less dense. That's why ice floats. So, the density of ice is about 0.92 grams per centimeter cubed... Compared to water, which is just exactly 1 gram per centimeter cubed. So, for every batch of ice you melt you gain 8% of that volume back as airspace. So if you have a huge amount of ice, we can just melt it and start building ourselves some ice caverns. And luckily, we have plenty of space to do that because the Arctic shelf is 2.16 kilometers thick, which means we have more than enough space to build kind of a sprawling Antarctic civilization. I don't know, like a... I just imagine it's a big underground mall with, I guess, a lot of fake emergency doors now. (laughs) And plants. Yeah, and plants, of course. And one other thing about the Arctic ice that is nice is that it conveniently contains 70% of our fresh water, which would also pair conveniently with our, you know, our desert homes. So if we could get that transfer going. Transfer will be easy. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's going to be inconvenient because all our underground areas are still going to be separated by the ocean. So the question is, can we burrow down and tunnel under the ocean? Now, Ben brought up a point that I didn't consider was that it gets hot down there. I didn't check the temperature because I thought that if you are underground, I didn't think we got deep enough that the actual earth would be heating it up to that hot. So that is one problem we'll have to solve. We'll have to get some good AC going. I I
0: will say one thing I did see. So if you can, whatever you're planning on doing it and do it like alongside, say, the Marianas Trench, because it has the water right next to it, that's actually a very good heat sink. So if you are, you can dig down as long as you're next to water because that will absorb the heat. So generally, we're doing that. That's good. We are tunneling under the ocean. Kind of
2: counterintuitive. If you want to reduce the amount of heat, why would you go to the deepest part of the ocean?
0: I mean, that was the example. If you just want, if you just want to be able to go straight
1: down, like that was kind of my thought. Yeah. the My answer has been that, you know, you have water the furthest down if, you're, if your goal is to get deep, deep, deep without it getting hot. So once we're down there, can we burrow and tunnel under the ocean? So the ocean floor is made up of sediment that settled down and the oceanic crust. So the oceanic crust is about four kilometers thick um, and is made up of different types of lava, <laughs> which is <laughs> not good. Lava. Uh, yeah, there's like different, apparently there's different types of lava. Some makes like bubbly mushroom flow shapes. Some makes laminar flow shapes. All of them are molten rock. Not good. So all that's left is the sediment on top. And I was feeling pretty down on being able to connect our civilizations here. And, you know, being able to save our desert sand kingdom. But turns out the sediment layer on the bottom of the ocean is pretty thick. It varies between 450 and 1,000 meters thick. Which turns out, yeah, that's something we can work with. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of sediment down there. So you can actually work your tunnel through the sediment layer and still be, assuming far enough away from the lava and safely traverse the ocean through a big, long tunnel, I guess assuming it's all limestone (laughs) well there's not much limestone at the at the bottom of the ocean because after a certain it's also uh, i'm trying to remember i just read a sentence somewhere like depth specific where limestone doesn't form under a certain depth because of how it dissolves and interacts with water and then so just it doesn't naturally form deeper down so you're not going to find any limestone at the bottom of the ocean it's all just going to be this uh mud and sediment and stuff but uh yeah so my original idea of turning everything to diamonds was cool but impractical but luckily i guess our earth is full of air and dissolvable things and ice so we do have some places where we can build our wonderful underground civilization that makes
2: exploration kind of interesting like instead of sailing the seas it's just who who
1: digs further <laughs> just like i'm gonna tunnel west until i hit something that is not just straight bedrock well what probably happen is someone will hit the ocean and then everyone will just die <laughs> well that wouldn't happen actually because if you have the water trying to rush in eventually there would be like if you have oh yeah it'd be like an air pocket any upward motion yeah be an air pocket so the pressure of just the volume of air you have inside would help prevent the water from just filling up your whole cave system that's some fluid mechanics i'd have to look into but (laughs) the idea is you don't drill into the water the other thing is we actually don't have to worry about drilling into the lava either apparently in a bunch of scientific expeditions and explorations they've you know, when they're looking more volcanic regions where lava is closer, they've accidentally drilled too deep and hit the, uh, the magma, which in my head was like, okay, well, now you've just created what's effectively a volcano, so you're screwed. But it turns out because it's not under the volcano high pressure conditions, like it's not ready to erupt. It just cools before it gets to the top of the shaft that you just drilled. So it just basically destroys your drilling equipment what, that touches the magma and then, you know, cools down and plugs up the hole you just built. So you have some, the ocean is a problem, but drilling down into lava is actually not that bad, which I guess is the takeaway. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's okay to drill into lava, kids.
1: Lava good, ocean bad. <laughs> and, and I think with that, we, we've, we've gone through this question and can go into our Would You Rather segment. Chris, are you ready? I'm ready. Would you rather be a giant hamster or a tiny rhinoceros? um do i retain my intelligence
0: (laughs) oh that's a good question
1: yes let's say yes okay
2: because i don't know anything about the intelligence of hamsters and rhinoceroses i assume the rhinoceros is more intelligent
1: yeah just based on well based on size but (laughs) (laughs) i
0: mean size of brain is a thing
1: like that's that's fair yeah yeah so it so if i'm a tiny rhinoceros does that make me dumber (laughs) well i guess it really depends on it's really neuron connection numbers like octopuses aren't the biggest but also are incredibly smart compared to you know some big animals right okay so i'll just say
2: i retain my intelligence no matter what my size i feel like people will be more afraid of a giant hamster and people just think a tiny rhinoceros is cute
1: how how tiny are we saying that's a good question so are they meeting in a middle ground where they're almost the same size or are we just swapping? is it like a hamster sized rhinoceros and and a rhinoceros sized hamster i really like that one yeah (laughs) okay
2: yeah so if if that's the case i think people just think the tiny rhinoceros is cute and people will
1: be terrified of a giant hamster (laughs) do you guys think hamsters are cute or hamsters are just basically just gross ass rats oh hamsters are cute yeah they're, they're definitely cuter than rats they're all fuzzy and puffy and stuff
0: marcus sounds unconvinced
1: i'm somewhere in between like where yeah hamsters are cute but i feel like Especially if they scale up, like, I feel like they're just going to start losing some of that. And it's like, oh, hey, this thing's just a big rodent. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the
2: size definitely helps with the cuteness. Mm, that's, that's a very good cute, point. Cute tiny
1: rhinoceros. <laughs> Can I just Google giant hamster?
0: Hamsters, <laughs> hamsters <laughs> are also very big, like, chewers. You're going to be able to chew a lot as a giant hamster. What do they eat normally? Everything. Um, I mean, the answer is pellets, but I don't know what that actually means. <laughs> I assume of... plants.
2: Yeah, yeah. I don't, I'm pretty sure they're not carnivores. Yeah,
1: there is a such thing as a giant hamster, according to Google Images, and it apparently is about the size of like a dog. A yeah, about the size of a dog. I feel like I knew that at some point. It looks a lot like uh like a beaver or a woodchuck without the you know signature tail. No, it's kind I'm of sophisticated.
0: I'm googling it. I okay. So the first well, thing I saw fake. was a CT <laughs> giant hamster, not like sophisticated. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, hold on. That's not. That's not a giant hamster. That's a, um. Isn't it like a like... capybara or like a? Yeah, that's um... what
1: I was gonna say. Oh, so it's not a real thing. Google lied to me. Crazy. I'm pretty sure that looks like a capybara. But yeah.
2: I definitely type giant hamster.
0: Oh, so the article that I'm seeing is called "Is That a Giant Hamster? Meet the Capybara." <laughs> <laughs>
2: That'll do it. But I mean, they're
0: kind of similar. I mean, cap- capybaras are are similar to giant hamsters, and they are pretty cute. They are cute.
2: They're not rhinoceros size. They're not rhinoceros they are, size. They have retained some cuteness to them. Yeah, but they're dog size, and we dogs are cute. Is there anything rhinoceros size that's cute?
0: Um, sometimes bears. Bears Elephants? can be cute.
1: Elephants can be cute.
0: Elephants can be cute. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay.
1: I mean, is it is the goal to be cute, or which one would you rather be? Well, I'm I'm
2: saying people would be scared of me, but if they think I'm cute, then they might not be scared of me. Okay,
1: here's one thing I'm thinking of. I think a hamster is more dexterous. Explain. Like, they can use their hands a bit. Oh, that's fair. As opposed to rhinoceroses, which are not great at using their um, hands because they don't have any. Well, I assume in both cases,
2: we would not really function as human anymore. We'd basically just become like a pet or an attraction or something so it doesn't really matter that we can't use our hands
1: no this is this is like if you keep your intelligence i think you're still self-sustaining i could be a self-sustaining hamster rhinoceros i think which kind of leans me towards tiny rhinoceros why (laughs) if you're gonna make a living it's a lot cheaper to live as a tiny rhinoceros than it is to live as a giant hamster it's a lot harder to be independent if you're tiny but you can just, like, get a life, like, scaled down to you. Like, I'm just, like, looking at my desk right now, and I can envision making my desk, like, my home as a tiny rhinoceros. Yeah, but
2: if you need to, like, buy something, then you need it to be, like, custom-made for you. And then you need to, like, go get it and, like, carry it over. And unless you rely on someone else, then they can do that for
1: you. Yeah, you can, you can solicit help. And you can still use a phone, I think. You could still use a phone, which is really the key. Like, if you can use a touchscreen... I think you're in good shape, even if you're tiny. And your tiny touchscreen is huge for you because you're a little baby rhinoceros.
2: <laughs> I mean, things will be cheaper for you, and you need less like food and stuff.
0: Yeah, I feel like I feel like providing for yourself food food wise is gonna be
1: very hard to giant hamster. What do hamsters even eat? <laughs> Pellets? It's plants. It's plants. Yeah, it's it's definitely plants. plants. Okay, so they both eat about the same thing, Gen- the same category of thing. Yeah. Man, all right. I'm, I'm just gonna call it right now. I don't like hamsters very much. I just want to be a tiny rhinoceros.
0: <laughs> I think I do too. It just feels more fun.
1: Yeah, I'd be a tiny rhinoceros. All right, let me let me let me let me flip the script very slightly here. We're gonna we're gonna do a rare double. Would you rather? If if we take the size consideration, and flip it around. Would you rather be a tiny hamster or a giant rhinoceros? So are, are we just saying like
0: one order of magnitude? So like and half like and double? up for rhinoceros down for hamster is that the yeah like a hamster here?
1: that's half the size of of a typical hamster or a rhinoceros that's twice the size of a typical rhinoceros See, that's,
0: that's a much bigger difference
2: for the rhinoceros than it is for the hamster
1: it is <laughs> percentage wise it's the same <laughs>
2: yeah i mean the hamster is basically just still a hamster in terms of like
0: function <laughs> <laughs> something about in terms of function just a very funny statement to me <laughs> but the uh, rhinoceros but you're right changes it a is lot. Yeah, it's just a small hamster. Like, It's not small. It's tiny. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm going to say long-term, tiny hamster is definitely the right choice. Just because I think it's, it's hard enough for large, large mammals to like get enough food as it is. A double large mammal is going to be pretty hard. Short-term, if I was going to be one of these for an hour, hell yeah, it's giant rhino.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. It's just Yeah, just for an
2: hour. Oh, my God. Yes. So a giant rhino would basically be like the size of an elephant, right?
1: i think bigger bigger um how tall is a rhino yes yeah, so it's like six feet tall you'd be slightly a... you'd be a big elephant if you were a double rhino
2: yeah it depends on if i want to try to still live with people or not or if i just want to live in nature from now on because that'd be very difficult to live with people as a giant rhinoceros
1: what if you're a taxi
2: because <laughs> that was my first thought <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> what if i was a taxi <laughs> Yeah, you just have like a, you know, you like side saddle some seats or whatever on you and you carry people around.
0: And that's how you make your money. Are you going to fit on the streets? Where do you keep the money? Also that.
2: You're going to fit on the streets? Do streets elephants, are big. Do elephants fit on streets? Yeah. Like in one lane?
1: <laughs> how? All right, legal? I'll go. How wide is an elephant?
2: <laughs> I don't think you're street legal.
1: How wide is an elephant? Uh, Its body length is 10 foot uh so it's probably like five four to five feet wide which is le- way less than a car really an elephant is that
0: hmm
2: so it's an option or, i mean
1: are rhinos
2: fast <laughs> does it matter fast <laughs> it's like a bicycle
1: it's like a bicycle chariot at, at a city you're not going it for speed you're going <laughs> it for experience
0: rhinos can apparently run 30 miles per hour
1: th- th- rhinos are fast <laughs>
0: rhinos are fast they're I mean, not compared go. to a car. Well, but you're like if the you're the size, in city, so you're,
1: you're, you're, fine. your leg spans even more. You can probably hit 40 miles an hour as a giant rhinoceros. <laughs> and city, city streets, you know, you don't need to go faster than that. And like, what are we going to do, Hawk at you? You're a giant rhino. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, this sounds, more, this sounds more and more awesome going on. I think I'm going to pick rhinoceros again. Are you basically the size of, like, a garbage truck or something. Yeah, roughly, yeah.
0: That's, that's a pretty good approximation. Okay. Yeah, maybe that isn't that bad. I have some doubts about the, like, sustainability of this. But also it sounds like it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I
2: think for some reason in general rhinoceroses are more appealing than than hamsters. I don't know why.
1: I mean, it's because they're way cooler, but let's right. not. I
2: mean, that's the answer.
1: Yeah. <laughs> also, I think the 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 benefits of being tiny as the rhinoceros, a lot of them I think go away when you go tiny as a hamster because like I'm just imagining like if I if I put my, my fingers together to make an approximate hamster size and then I half that that's like a little too small to comfortably use most things that I'd want to use. And you lose the novelty of being a tiny rhinoceros, so it's harder to make money. Yeah, it's hard to be just a small, small hamster. So, yeah, I'm double rhinoceros, baby. Two horns. Yeah, me too.
0: Okay, so it's... It, rhinoceros is definitely lower floor, higher upside. I think I am going to go rhinoceros because it sounds like a lot of fun.
2: Hell yeah. It's four horns, by the way. Rhinoceros have two horns, right? Yeah, but they just get twice as big. So it's still just... Yeah, but you said double rhinoceros.
1: Oh yeah, fine. Well, it depends on the species, but that's neither here nor there. What the?
2: I just I just searched Rhino and it's it suggested. Do you mean Rhino the hamster? Well then, <laughs>
0: <laughs> we know you're listening,
2: Google. Just slow your roll a little bit. Oh okay. Apparently, in the movie Bolt,
1: there's a hamster named Rhino. <laughs> Interesting. Hey, speaking of Google tips, this this one's for free that I just learned today, which I don't know how I haven't been using all the time is how to remove a search term from a search. And this is, just, this is just general knowledge that I was very excited to learn. If you just put a dash, like a minus sign, in front of a oh, search yeah. term, it gets rid of it. This is so helpful. Oh my God. I, I can't believe, believe I've been living without that. this.
0: I'm actually shocked you didn't know
2: that.
1: I didn't know that. I thought there was a different way to do it. I figured out a different way to do it before, and then I forgot. I definitely tried. I knew there was way like, algorithms to do it, and I was typing in, like, not in all exclamation, you know, and quotes around it or whatever that all don't actually do the thing. Um, but it came up today when I was looking up um, if you could turn bedrock into diamonds, and all I got was Minecraft nonsense.
0: Yeah, I do that when I was trying to look up underground farming, and all I got was Minecraft nonsense. So
2: <laughs> I didn't get any Minecraft stuff with my psychology. <laughs> well, surprising,
0: <then. laughs> surprising, yeah.
1: So. That was your that's your free tech tip for more tech tips um, you can always tune into our behind the scenes episodes which you can access via our patreon www.patreon.com absurd hypotheticals uh, and click on that become a Patron button for one dollar a month that's it just one singular dollar you get access to our behind the scenes episodes we do one per month we talk about we kind of review the previous month's questions what we really thought about each other's answers. Uh, we workshop new material for the show. We brainstorm ideas. We do all sorts of nonsense every t- once in a while. We we'll have guests too, so lots of cool things going on there. Check it out: Patreon.com/slash/absurdhypotheticals. But if whether you do that or not, you are more than welcome to join us next week for the free version of the show, where we answer the following question:
2: What if no one felt fear? For our Halloween
0: episode. Ooh. Ooh. I committed to the ooh more than Chris did.